Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from TechTables.com, and you're listening to the Public Sector Show by TechTables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders. Through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events, we offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. And to continue this darn good conversation, head over to the Q&A section on Spotify. Today we have Phil Komarni, Chief Innovation Officer at Maryville University of St. Louis, former VP of Innovation at Salesforce and Chief Digital Officer, formerly at the University of Texas System. Phil, welcome to Tech Tables. And before we kick off today's episode, I want to give a big thank you to one of our brand partners who keeps this podcast free to the listener. Nagara is a leading provider of digital government services, partnering with state, local, and federal clients on some of their most strategic technology projects. Nagara offers expertise in digital services, legacy modernization, case management, data and AI, service desk, cybersecurity, and more. Make sure to check out nagaro.com. That's N-A-G-A-R-R-O.com. Well, thank you so much, Joe. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm excited. I've got to give a shout out to our guy, Joshua Teppen, which I'm going to bring him up a little bit at the end of the podcast, but for connecting us, super excited for this opportunity. So Phil, I listened back to your podcast with Mark Lombardi on Disruptor in Chief. And, uh, you know, it was absolutely fantastic. One of the topics that Mark brought up was about the identity specifically in the context of data as who you think you are, how your family and friends view who you think you are, and how really now how the internet views who you think you are with, the, with ending with the question of what's your digital self. That was a great question by Mark. And I was thinking about this. This kind of took me back to my college days. I, I was remembering, so Charles Cooley came to mind. He was kind of the guy who first coined the phrase, the looking glass self. And for those who are a little rusty, looking glass self describes the process where individuals base their sense of self on how they believe others view them. Using social interactions as a type of mirror, people use the judgments they receive from others to measure their own worth, values, and behaviors. For example, how my podcast audience (laughs) views me, how my wife views me, how my kids view me, how my basketball team views me, et cetera. So Phil, I was super excited to talk to you today. And I was really thinking about, you know, how do you think about the student identity in the context of this mass amounts of data that we have and the effects on the learner today? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we're moving into a world where personal data is going to be treated a lot differently. Like we've come out of COVID. I think COVID stands for catalyst of verifiable individual data, COVID. And the ways that we can allow data to be persistent with a customer or a learner or anybody to really change systems to allow trust to be persistent with our with the person that created the data. So what we what we're doing at Maryville is really getting students to understand basically how these machines work. I mean, if you look at the world today and how data powers all of these really large uh, systems that we're all products of, when you look at how our data is being used, what I think in the education space is once we start to show students like this is how the machine sees you this is what these are the skills and abilities that are gleaned from what you're currently learning so giving them that ability to see that 
and be able to connect that with opportunities, be them educational or career, and be able to create pathways that get kids there a lot quicker than they do through a four-year degree program. That's, pro that's part of what we're starting to unlock for not just Maryville, but Maryville and a, a much larger group that uh, Maryville services through something called Maryville Works, which is their workforce development arm at Maryville. Using this method, which is personal data as a driver to, to allow somebody to actually understand how they're seeing and what their abilities are, that's the method that we're taking and the deviation we're taking from what current state looks like in the market. So, you know, you can have LinkedIn and all that stuff. Good for you. That's great. It's all full of lies. All that whole website, if you look at what's there, there's more Stanford grads and more MIT grads that ever could ever go to that school, those schools that, you know, they claim these things. But when we start to go back to catalyst the verifiable individual data, COVID, verifiable credential standard, all these things are coming up. We have new ways to treat data and new ways to engage around it. I think what we're going to see is personal data as a method to create loyal relationships with businesses, with education, with anything. That's going to be the new mechanism. That's what we're, that's what we're starting to treat it differently at Maryville. That's fantastic. I interview a lot of folks in the public sector and a mm -hmm. hot topic right now is workforce development. Uh, and I actually just had a fantastic episode Huge. with a guy uh, from the state of Indiana who leads their mm -hmm. workforce development, John Rogers. And sure. I was kind of curious, like, what excites you about, you, you opened up a little bit uh, about Maryville, but I was wondering, like, what excites you most about the workforce development program that you're seeing at Maryville right now? That the relationships that they've created aren't for degrees or for degree pathways, they're for subscription models that really persist over a lifetime. So what Maryville Works is doing is saying, not going to a business and saying, hey, you need some MBAs or you need some of our degrees. What learning do you need to move your business forward? And what are those drivers? So trying to align that type of conversation through technology, through these, the methods I just spoke of, that's what excites me, is that they've already broached the, 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 the conversation around a subscription or a persistent model you can't service that through an LMS and through people having people log in. It doesn't work. It would have worked already. MOOCs would have taken off and went to the moon and back. They didn't. So now we have to have ways that really translate that value differently. And that's where that's why I think I'm very excited about what Maryville Works has already attained. And now how we can apply this technology and let them see that next level, that next level up. How you can actually scale that kind of organization or that kind of operation through the dissemination of personal information. That's the difference. And that's why I'm excited about it. Yeah, no, that's great. Part of your background was brought up uh, on the podcast that I was listening to, and you didn't actually go to college. I don't know if you dropped out of college, but you didn't finish. I loved that. That really, really resonated with me. I yeah. started college at a university, and then I left because they kept raising the prices. <laughs> and I said, no, this is dumb. Yeah, happens uh, a lot. Right? So I left. I left in our household. So I did not graduate, but my wife, funny enough, actually, for those on LinkedIn, she actually graduated from Stanford. I always laugh. And, uh, there you people, go. She she's a real, she's real in the flesh. So that's kind of <laughs> our household. So we've got a great, uh, we've got two kids. And so the learning dynamic in our household, I think is awesome just as far as bringing to two different perspectives on problem solving yeah. and challenges and all of that. And so workforce, I love the workforce development. There's a lot of people out there where, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but you nailed it when you, you said on the other podcast, creativity breeds ownership. And I just absolutely, yep. it just really resonated with me. I know it resonates with a lot of people. 
I coach high school basketball, so I'm meeting with high schoolers all the time. And when I have to go check yeah. report cards and their grades are not what they need to be, when you actually talk to kids, you got to figure out how to get them motivated or they're going to go fail across the board. And so how yeah. do you get them motivated? Yeah, right. Typically, you've got to figure out what they care about. And in my experience, some of the kids are like, well, coach, you know, I want to go on dates and I like this girl. I like that. I said, I, I get it. I get it. But she's not going to date you if you're failing chemistry. <laughs> so are you failing? <laughs> you phys- you're failing physics. So you have to get them motivated and try and get that creativity. So I really, we'll talk about that a little bit, but before we jump yeah. down another concept that was brought up and I love this kind of the core of my, my, of the podcast is think of data as a human experience. And, and I just, again, that's a phrase that just really hit home. What does that look like at Maryville for today's students? Yeah, that's, they're not experiencing that yet. That's coming in 23. That's what we're preparing to welcome them back in August of 23 with a very deviated experience for them to realize their data that way. That quote that you got is from a, a woman that I've been really lucky to get to know and understand and learn from. Her name is Beth Rudden. She was the cognitive data scientist at IBM for about 14 years. And what I really find fascinating is her quote is, Data is an artifact of a human experience. If you understand her background, she's a anthropologist and a linguist, not a data scientist. Well, she is now, but that's how her, her background is. But when you think about how data really is an artifact of a human experience, why do we treat it the way we do? If we can treat it differently, we can motivate more people, especially in the skills development space, where she was able to even try this in her former role where motivating people with the propensity to learn, just showing them that avenue and how they are seen was enough to build an 800 person data science team, just to show people they they have the propensity to be on this team and giving them pathways to get there. Holy crap. It wasn't like, Hey, go sign up for this big degree and pay $60,000 to get us into this new role. It's really like, I see you for who you are and this is how you can get to where you want to be. That's a whole different way to think about education. And I think that's what Maryville is really inspired me to leave one of the best positions I've ever worked at as vice president of innovation at Salesforce. Amazing company. Never thought I would ever leave that job. But Dr. Lombardi, who you listened to on that uh, podcast with me, inspired the hell out of me. When he starts to talk about revolutions, what I'm speaking of is a way to actually make it happen. I think it's going to take a culture to really conceive it and really a, you know, really believe in it. The tech is easy. It's this part that's hard. It's the culture that's hard, especially in higher ed. But we, at Maryville, we do have a deviated culture who really, you know, in the last year, we've blown up IT. There is no IT at Maryville anymore. It's called collective technology. We engage our departments through technology by creating a language that they understand and we understand their business language. So now we have a way to really run the operation where technology isn't a control but a community. So that's the de- difference that these kind of changes that we're talking about have to be in place before you deliver them. I've always been one that's been innovating like crazy. And I think innovation is all about timing. And my timing sucks to date. Now it's actually pretty good. Before I'm always the guy in the corner with my drink and nobody else is in the room yet. That's innovation to me in the past. Now, because of COVID and everything I just spoke of, there's a lot of people listening to what we're saying and what we're doing and very interested in this approach and how can they adopt it. So I think timing, the timing's right and really the market's right because the higher ed market is 
in dire straits, especially the mid-market of education, where the majority of these great faculty members work. So how can we give them different ways to, you know, scale this? Because education is something this country definitely needs to scale, <laughs> and especially after what we've been through the last couple of years and seeing how people don't even understand basic civics anymore. So we have to think about how this company, how this country can function through this as we move forward. I think it, I think education is a huge part of what we're going to need as we start to realize how data can really help us be more human, not control the humans where it's, you know, what it's doing today, I think. <clears throat> yeah, you, you talked a lot about scaling the education, and I think that's actually a super fascinating topic because in order for it to be effective, you mm -hmm. have to be able to control the cost at which you scale. And right now, yep. that's, I think the number one problem is that it's just out of control. It's out of control. It's crazy. Right. What do you think the solution is as you scale to keep the costs down yeah. for the it's learners? Simple. It's, it's a, yeah, I really think it's about, right now we think through universities. Every university does the same things. They're all little cities. I mean, they have all the same services. The things that they do sell though is their content and their assessment, okay? That's one thing they treat one way. They sell it through a course. They collapse it into something they can deliver through an LMS and charge for it. What I've been a proponent of since my days at UT, we're really thinking about how we treat that content and assessment. Why don't we break it up and make it more modular and make it, you know, use some really great technology to allow metadata to persist with it, to understand what, it, what you're learning when you take that course or that, that piece of content, what skills you might be developing at what level, and let that persist with the information. So in our system that we're building, once we understand that person's profile very well, any personalized learning journey can be had because we've broken our content to a point where it can be reassembled in real time for any person and their journey. Right now, they're called curricular journeys, and that's good luck. They're, nobody's the same. Everybody's different. Why would I have to hear the same bullshit stuff that you had to listen to when I've been doing this for two years? I mean, there's different ways to start to see the student differently, not through an admissions form, but through their knowledge, skills, and abilities. And we have some AI that helps us gen that out of their profile and start to let them see themselves through that lens. And once we connect that with their goal might be, I want to be a data scientist. Well, I'm here today, here's every little stepping stone that's gonna get you there over time. And that doesn't take a faculty, it doesn't take a curriculum, it takes some really great thinking and some data. And if we can do that and make subscription models happen, there's a scale play that actually works individually for anybody. Not, hey, we can scale this one course in a MOOC to millions of people, big deal. That didn't work, look at it. It's yeah. already, you know, Coursera's pivoted, pivoting their business models we speak right now. So it's all changing, but I think once you realize that people have data that's very valuable, that actually becomes part of your system you're trying to build by just creating a relationship with them instead of trying to hoard it and trying to understand them, let's create a lifelong relationship with them. And I think we can actually make lifelong learning happen because it's not episodic and we have to understand them across their whole journey, not just when they're four years at the school. Yeah, I love that lifelong a lifelong journey. You've mentioned that a couple times and I just, it, it hits home, especially in today's world where, and I'm telling these kids who are seniors and they're going to graduate. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, guys, you don't understand the journey doesn't end. <laughs> it's not four years and you're done. 
get Never. used to learning on a daily basis, which actually yeah. bring actually is a great transition. So disruption is happening everywhere. And I think the economic cycle of where we're at is happening right now as we're starting to turn really faster by the day. Companies are reducing headcount and technology is advancing very quickly. How is, you know, we kind of already talked a little bit about this, but I think like on a core of how, how is Maryville really standing out to keep these kids ahead of the game in this ever-changing world? There's a lot of ways they do it today with, they have life coaches for every student that comes there. They have all these services that they're, you know, giving these students to get them, you know, on their life journey. So their current curricular model is really strong. And I think it's really interesting how they apply the services to it. I think the next step of it is going to be this data play around how can we, you know, enhance what we do by allowing our customer, our learner to be able to understand themselves better. Like it is a really, it's a deviated approach, but really getting involved and in making students, kids understand that this data is literally powering our planet today. Why aren't we involved in the conversation? And I think it is an educational move, movement because right now all those other data sets, pick another vertical, healthcare, I don't care. Those data sets are sold in tertiary markets for billions of dollars. All that data is being abused. Educational data is not, okay? It's not. But we can make it into a very valuable resource for the people that created it if we create a system that sees them through it. So that's the big difference that Maryville is going to see with their students in 2023 when they come back. So we've made big investments in Slack, the enterprise grid. We have different ways we're trying to kill every 20th century process on the campus and up-level it into something where students really want to be today. So that's the motivation that Dr. Lombardi has given us as a leadership team is erase every 20th century process. I'm like, uh, Dr. Lombardi, you understand that email is a 20th century process. He's like, yeah, let's get rid of it. So those kind of move movements and that kind of leadership is what it's going to take for this to be seen. Because I don't think there is that kind of leadership on every college campus in this country. And that's the reason I was motivated to actually leave my post to go there and work. I've never seen this level of unbridled thinking and change agents in one place in my career. And I'm lucky to work at Maryville because of who they are and what they're trying to attain. And I think they actually have a chance to do it because they're the right size school in the right market and the right leadership. And if we apply the right tech at the right time, you might actually have innovation work. And I think we're just about to realize that here in 2023. I love that. I was kind of curious, what, what advice would you give to leaders from what you've learned from Dr. Lombardi uh, well, on the leadership front? Wow, that's a great question. Wow. In times of like strife and trouble, like we're having the last three, four years, it's really an opportunity. It's not time to like batten down the hatches. Like when we think about what happened with COVID and everything had to happen remotely, I mean, Maryville had already made digital investments in their infrastructure years before that. So they were one of the lucky ones that could flip a switch and go online. But <clears throat> having that happen wasn't easy. Dr. Lombardi and team have never been afraid to make, the, to make a big, to take that first step, be the first ones to take the step. I think there's a lot of uh, antiquated thinking on college campuses. Like we do this because it's the way we've always done it. Anything that has that connotation at Maryville gets destroyed. It cannot happen that way. That is not what the future is going to look like. So we're, I think it's leadership 
Joe, I really I think it's all about that leader's ability to conceive and adopt change. And education and healthcare and government are three that are really bad at it. But now have these has a huge opportunity to do it in a different way that's way better for everybody. And that's what I think education has the mantle to do this again, because the data is not being sold. There's a really great way to kind of create the system to engage people. So being courageous is what we talk about a lot at Maryville, courage. And what, what does courage look like? You got to be vulnerable to be courageous. Do you have to be willing to fail? I know that, you know, the majority of the, really innovative things you might do might be failures, but you're going to learn from them. I think that culture is the reason Maryville is who they are and the leadership team that they've convened. is just blows me away. I've worked in a lot of great places. It's one of the best teams I've ever worked on and having that leadership drive that change through like courage is the difference. Not because we have to, it's because we know this is going to be better. And we should be courageous enough to take that step for our learners. And that's why we're doing these things. They're not easy. This isn't easy. This is way hard, but it's really valuable. And I think it's going to value, you know, the state of Missouri and, and hopefully the world as we start to progress this out into scale play. I love that. And are, th are there any projects that you would like to highlight right now that you're working on at Maryville? I know you got some stuff coming out in 2023, yeah. but is, is there anything yeah. that you would like to brag on right now? Yeah, Braglin, Josh Tapin, and the team I call the Six Pack. So we took apart the IT team and we created this thing called the Six Pack. Six leaders, executive directors of six different organizations that really come together and service our whole university through information. So when you think about how IT kind of controls everything through technology, like you want this deployed, we'll manage that for you. We're going to do this, that, and the other thing. That's a control. What we've done is created collective technology, and that's what I'm proud of. It's getting that leadership group that I talked of to conceive this with me. It's not like something I delivered to them. We, back in June of this year, sat around a President's Council retreat table in Chicago and came up with this idea around collective technology and what it could do for the university and how it would really facilitate the change that we're trying to attain. So in two months, in 60 days after forming that group, they the level of output was unfathomable. It was like when I reported to our board what we were able to do in 60 days, they couldn't believe it. I mean, things that were blocked for years got done in weeks because the right people were in the right place with the right mon mantra to actually go and do these things. Empower them. Empower these people, not try to control them like IT currently did or did in the past. So as we deliver solutions to our community, our collective, they take on the ownership of that piece of software or that engagement. So we have a community of practice around Salesforce and around Slack that all of our departments have those abilities in them. So if we're going to build this stuff out on these platforms, why am I trying to control all of it? Why can't I get my whole collective to be a part of this community and part of this conversation through data? It's not something you need to control anymore. It's low code, no code. Why the hell am I doing it all? I want this stuff to be pushed out to the edge so they understand my language because I do my best to understand the business language. And that's what I'm proud of is getting my team, our team, to go out and listen and hear and then solution, not say, hey, here's a great solution for you. That's not how this works. I want to hear your business problem. And once I got the teams really starting to do that, unbelievable things happened. So I'm going to brag on that right now, but that's just like an organizational structure that I've always tried to graft onto innovation after we deliver it, Joe, 
doing it first and then having this technology and innovation that we're doing off to the side come back to Maryville in 23, that's the deviation. That's the one thing I've done differently this time that I really think is going to make it work because we can land this level of change in an organization that's already changed, already understands how to adopt it, understands where they are in the racy chart, understands all that stuff. So it's very transparent because I believe the clear is kind. And if we can be very clear with this, it's very kind for people to understand. It's a very scary, deviated journey, but we all have big parts to play in this new world. So it is, that's the thing I'm proud of right now is getting that group together and really starting to uh, execute and architect the future for Maryville through that team. I love that. Reimag like what comes to mind is just how you're reimagining the future of education. If I was going to sum up what you're yeah. doing right now, I love that. What I was kind of curious. So outside of Maryville, what universities are you talking with right now uh, in the transformational higher ed space that have piqued your interest? Well, you know what? That's a good question. I think there's a lot of great models out there. SNHU has a great model. WGU has a great model. ASU has a great model. All the three-letter acronym schools have great models. They are working with all their city. They, they all are thinking about how to treat personal data differently. I think a large school, I used to work at the University of Texas. It's like the Titanic. Trying to move those ships is really difficult when you have that level, the scale that they have already attained. To make that level of change is even... You know, it's, I think it's almost impossible because what our solution was at UT was right. And if they had it when COVID happened, they would have been able to do so many different things for the state. But unfortunately, that's, that doesn't happen in these big places. It's just too hard to move the ship. So some of the workforce development things that are happening in the space, like from Northeastern University and some other folks, are really cool. They're doing, you know, global education programs in different countries around apprenticeship models and things that aren't just cohort-based, you know, rote learning. It's, they're very engaging, lead to a job, directly connected to a job. Over in the UK, they're funding it with a tax levy. I mean, there's all these different models that really innovative people here in the US are starting to take advantage of. So, so let, let's wrap up with Joshua Tapin. And he mentioned, so I was DMing with him in Twitter, and he had mentioned, you have a great open door policy. Then I asked him, I was like, hey, Joshua, like, what questions do you want to ask Phil? No, you know what? That's a great question. Josh is one of them. He's such a great technologist because he really cares, okay? What he did ask me last time is really like how to lead. Like he's never led before. This is like a new place for him and like a new way to think about where he used to be heads down, just hammering on a keyboard, cloud engineer, just kicking butt. It's a little different now. You got to kind of build 10 of you and lead 10 of you, not be one person doing 10 people's work, which he could completely do himself. Growing somebody like Josh and his abilities through leadership is like, I want to see that happen because he could be such a powerful human for many people. So it's all about leadership and listening right now. I think that's where Josh is, where he's really growing. And it's, it's fascinating to see. I'm, I'm so blessed to work with him. He's, a, he's an amazing engineer and even better thinker. So that's where, I mean, when I were in robots and pencils, really we looked at for people like that in the robot world. Robots are engineers, pencils are artists. When we found somebody like with that core, comp that core like talent set where they could hear, not through tech, but hear, and care, that's a unicorn developer. So that's where we were always love to bring people like him on board. But 
Josh has a great future, and I think he's just starting to realize how great of a leader he is now. So I really, you know, really look forward to working with Josh. And my open door is like Zoom, club remote. I live in Colorado. They're all in – he lives in Austin, and most of my team's in St. Louis, Missouri. But we're constantly on Slack. Huddles are the new water cooler. So it's constant, like shoulder tap, huddle, hey, let's have a chat. Really doing well. I, it's, a, it's a great interface, but – Josh is Josh is going to be an incredible technology leader someday, and he's already starting to attain it. Yeah, I am a big fan of Slack. I really like Slack. I've got a bunch of stuff hooked up for my own business, and just I just love automation. If it can be automated, there's no. It's like a disservice to a human. And and I love I love and, that. And I, I really like that. The best language I've ever yeah. heard was Google's person who owns Chromebooks at Google. I forget his name. He basically said it was they're reinventing work at Google. They will not give a human an inhumane job to do. If a machine can do it, it's inhumane to give it to a human. And that thinking is a little scary, but it's actually pretty freeing when you think of a university structure and all the like automatable work that happens that we can really get our people to really focus on our, our students more and less on these stupid workflows that we can automate. So that's what's going to be a lot happening in the next three, four months at Maryville. And I think by August, we're going to be able to show a much more automated and more engaging digital experience for every learner. And Slack's a big part of it. Yeah, no, that is fantastic. And I'm always shocked. I think it just comes back down to control. Too many people want to control every little thing. But it's really freeing when you've got stuff that's just getting automated and running. It just frees you up to spend more time, typically yeah. with the people or with the learners. And you don't need to be head down tinkering with the workflows to make sure it's going once you get the system up. And the advancements with AI that are happening right now are, if people don't notice, but it's replacing a lot of stuff already, stuff that previously humans or maybe it was even outsourced is a commodity because now software is just taking over. AI is a huge piece of that. And it's definitely an exciting time. This is a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate the time, Phil, and thank you for coming on the Higher Ed Show. Oh, Where can people find you? Where they find me? Uh, I'm still on Twitter until that place burns down. So I feel Camarney on Twitter. <laughs> uh, I'm on Post. I'm on Mastodon everywhere. But it's you know what I've been not as not as active on social lately because of the state that it's in. I think we're about to see a big change, and time, now's the time. Hell, I even said that Elon's not paying Twitter's rent. I heard that on the news today. So who knows what's <laughs> going to happen with that place? We'll see. We will see. Yeah, I love Twitter, but I've got a curated feed, so I try and stay out of the crazy. But yeah, but, but I love my curated feed, and it's a great way for me to connect with all the audience and followers. So yep. thanks for coming on, Phil. This was a ton of fun, and looking forward to getting this episode out. Thanks, Joe. Really appreciate your time. Thanks. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from techtables.com, and you're listening to the Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders. Through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events, we offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. And to continue this darn good conversation, head over to the Q&A section on Spotify.